I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. After runoff elections in Colombia this week, the South American country has a new president. Me llamo Gustavo Petro y soy su presidente. Gustavo Petro had been a member of the guerrilla group called the 19th of April Movement as a teenager and well into his 20s. His running mate, Francia Marquez, the first Afro-Latina to become vice president, has spent her adult life battling against extractive industries in rural Colombia. More recently, Petro served as mayor of Colombia's capital of Bogota. Petro in the runoff faced the Trump-like Rodolfo Hernandez, dubbed the TikTok king, who had the full support of the Colombian right. With Petro's upset, he becomes the first left-wing president ever elected in Colombia's history. Now, it's a country where the left has traditionally been identified with guerrilla groups like the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, but a peace deal signed in 2016 created hope that Colombia could move past its decades-long civil war and kind of channel that ideological conflict into electoral politics, transferring power peacefully instead. In the final days of the election, the U.S. government made it abundantly clear that they were strongly opposed to Petro, but Colombian voters shrugged off us gringos and elected him anyway. Jimena Sanchez Garzoli is the Andes director at the Washington office on Latin America, known as WOLA, where she is the leading Colombia human rights advocate. She was on the ground in Colombia to observe the recent elections and joins us from there now to discuss. Jimena, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you talk a little bit about election day itself? You were down there in Colombia. You, you were, we were just talking earlier, you were down there observing uh, some of the elections. What What is an election like in, in Colombia and what was the aftermath? Well, at the beginning of election day, really, there was no sense of what could happen. On the one hand, it, it could have turned out into a situation of complete chaos and social protest or a huge celebration. I think there was tremendous tension and expectation. The second candidate, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, was a huge surprise after the first round. And so it was very unclear what could happen. And so the actual day of the elections went incredibly smooth. And then around 4.30, as soon as it was clear that Gustavo Petro was going to win, it just erupted into a massive party and carnival. People pouring out into the streets, screaming, dancing, crying, celebrating. It it was just uh, unbelievable. And that went on all night. Um, until the next day. And what, what kind of people pouring into the streets? Like what, what, what is the, the Petro Francia Marquez coalition? Mm-hmm. Well, here in Cali, it was ordinary people. So you had many different people who had been part of the social protest that happened in 2021 that was brutally repressed. So a lot of young people of all walks of life, um, black, indigenous, um, mestizo, you had elderly people, you basically had the Colombia that you normally don't see 
all pouring out into the streets. And what I mean, the one that you don't see is that, you know, Colombia has been basically ruled for years by uh, traditional political parties that are very distant from the general population. And, you know, usually when you have an elections, I think, you know, I've been here other elections before, it's something that's just announced on TV and there isn't that much excitement. And you've never seen something where there's such a popular mandate, where there's such fur and excitement. And you see people of all walks of life. I mean, you had here in Cali, uh, indigenous NASA dancing along with Afro-Colombians, with young women. I mean, you had everyone basically in a total uproar. And to set the context for what you were talking about, can you can we go back to 1948 real quickly? And can you talk a little bit about how how the assassination of, of Jorge Gaetan kind of set the stage for the next 70 years of Colombian politics? Sure. So um, Gaetan was basically the first uh, real expression of a progressive leader in Colombia that was gaining much force. And he was assassinated. And as soon as he was assassinated, that brought in what is known as the Bogotazo, which is basically people of the different ideological strains uh, killing each other and attacking each other. And that delved into what was the modern civil war that we had here between the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia and the government that didn't end officially until 2016. It also ushered in eras of multiple different guerrilla, leftist guerrilla movements, an incredible amount of violence, repression and use of paramilitary groups um, that committed crimes against humanity. And so, you know, there was a sense that after everything that happened in the past two years with the pandemic, with the hope of the peace accord being dashed by Ivan Duque being president and doing his utmost to completely undermine the peace and him also completely repressing the, the popular demands and needs that were expressed in the, the civic strike of last year, that if in this situation there was some kind of fraud or some kind of wrongdoing where Plan B for the right, which was Rodolfo Hernandez, this outsider candidate that came out of nowhere. One, that it would very likely devolve into people turning to violence on Sunday, and that didn't happen. So that was pretty amazing. And so how does Gustavo Petro fit into this history? And what is, what is M19 and what's their relationship to the FARC and to the other kind of uh, armed leftist mm-hmm. movements? So the M19 was mostly an urban intellectual guerrilla movement in in the late 80s that pretty much, you know, wanted to have a government and a way of life that took into account um, the majority of the country. In Colombia, things are incredibly unequal. Uh, Resources are not well distributed. Land is very much concentrated into a few families. And the way that power has been kept by a lot of those families has been through using violence and coercion and also very much exploiting um, a labor class and um, getting the gains of of, of the country and keeping it to themselves. And so um, the M19, among multiple groups that have developed in Colombia, but especially the M19, you know, had a vision of, of, of of changing that. And when they demobilized, 
they brought in basically was was a constitutional assembly that led to the most progressive constitution Colombia has ever had in 1991. And, and this constitution is great in the sense that individuals can even, there's a constitutional court, individuals can say that certain rights haven't been met and actually um, ask for the constitutional court to intervene. It's the first time that Afro-Colombian indigenous people really recognized as part of the country, so it made the country pluri-ethnic. It led to the passage of laws that grant Afro and indigenous people collective land rights, things like that. So here you had this incredible hope of this of this constitution, but unfortunately, little of it has really been applied in the past 30 years. And so, you know, Gustavo Petro comes from that movement, that very progressive mm-hmm. point of view of a state that really works for people. And that's very much reflected in, you know, what he's proposing to do in terms of his governmental plan. And you, you often hear him described as a former rebel and a, or a former guerrilla. Like, what exactly do we know about what he did with M-19? So it's important to understand that in Colombia, there are a lot of former rebels or former people mm-hmm. who demobilized and, and went into government. For example, there were multiple former rebels that ended up working in the Alba Uribe Velas, a very right-wing, nearly fascist government. And there are different types of rebels in Colombia. Of all of the different rebel groups um, in the history of Colombia, the M-19 was probably one of the least violent, Mm -hmm. although it did commit mistakes and is very much criticized for taking over the Palace of Justice that led to uh, the military uh, coming in and um, basically the disappearance of most of the judges. Um, that was a tragic event. But generally speaking, compared to the other guerrilla groups that have committed mass human rights violations, you know, like the FARC that kidnapped thousands of people, mm-hmm. um, committed all sorts of massacres, this was one of the least violent uh, guerrillas. Uh, most of its actions were symbolic. And the role that he played was very much one more of a political one, not an armed fighter going out and, you know, setting off bombs and things like that. So um, it's important to understand that there are different types of guerrillas in Colombia. You can't lump them in altogether. How do the narcos fit into the, the politics as they unfolded over the 80s and 90s? And what is, you know, what's Petro's kind of posture been uh Toward, toward them, and I, I've I've heard him saying that he's planning on taking them on. Like, what what does that mean? What does that what does that look like? So you can't divorce Colombian economy or Colombian life from narco trafficking since the mid nineteen eighties, when you had the whole proliferation of the cocaine trade, and most of the country is basically corrupted by the narco trade. You don't have the high level of exportation of cocaine the way that you do without most of the country in some way either being bought off or involved or complicit in that drug trade. And by that, I mean, you know, the institutions and I mean uh, members of the armed forces. That said, all of the armed groups have also benefited from narco-trafficking. So after the world started changing, you know, and the Soviet Union collapsed, and Cuba was no longer financing uh, guerrilla operations, a lot of the leftist groups started relying on narco-trafficking, coca, and taxation of 
that whole process to survive. At the same time, the right-wing paramilitaries, which at one point were a federation of paramilitaries, and now you have about 13 different successor groups of those paramilitaries, are all making money off of the drug trade. It's one of the many illicit activities that they make money. So in the 1980s, you had the fight of different cartels that were trying to dominate Colombia. You know, this was the time of Pablo Escobar, the Cali cartel, and, and all of that. Since then, the cartels have really formed into smaller entities and, and fluctuated and not um, had that high profile that you had at that time, but, uh, you know, still very existent. And it is something that you can't divorce. So the way that they've addressed narco-trafficking since the year 2000 has been through this notion heavily funded by the United States that started as Plan Colombia with this idea that is completely ridiculous, which is if you attack the coca, you're going to have so little coca produced that it's going to make cocaine so expensive that people outside are not going to buy it. You know, that's it's, it's so dumb, it's almost laughable. Yeah, but that's the official position. So the way that narco traffickers have been at, uh, attacked for years have been either by attacking the coca plant, which means mostly rural farmers, which are the lowest level in, in this operation, and high-level interdiction of top assets, and many of them extradited to the United States this has not worked in any way, shape, or form because the drug trade is so incredibly lucrative that, you know, you take out one hand and you have like 10 different middle people who are willing to take that on. And it's self-defeating. Like it, if their goal is. is to raise the price of it, then they make it more attractive for other people to get in. So it, like on its own terms, it just falls yeah, apart. Yeah, the whole, the whole thing makes no sense. And then it also has had another part which has been incredibly environmentally destructive and bad to health, which has been aerially fumigating crops with what is pretty much the equivalent of Roundup mixed with other things, um, which all it did was spread the coca throughout the entire country. So coca was very concentrated in certain parts of the country. And as aerial fumigation started taking place, the growers started spreading it into smaller plots. And now you have coca grown all over the country. Yeah, there's some areas where it's more concentrated. But the point is that this policy and so forth hasn't worked. So what Gustavo Petro has proposed is to have a much more integral, holistic policy that looks at two things. First, implementing the what was agreed to in the peace accord on illicit coca crops. And that's completely focused on building markets for those rural farmers. Now, to build markets for those rural farmers is not just giving them another job, which is something that is hard to compete in areas where you've had high insecurity, war zones, and lack of any infrastructure, you know, roads and, and what have you. So, you know, that sounds easier said than done, but it basically is building the state in multiple parts of the country where the institutions have really abandoned those populations, hence illicit um, crops have become uh, the way for people to survive. Secondly, that part of the peace accord led to a whole bunch of agreements with a lot of these rural farmers of how to do that. And uh, the Duque administration basically did nothing to advance this. And so uh, Gustavo Perez is going to take that on again. And then at the same time, 
other parts of the peace accord that involve narco-traffickers, which is basically all different sorts of efforts to dismantle these illegal groups that all feed off of narco-traffickers. In the case of um, more paramilitary groups, he's talked about giving them the opportunity to have incentives to basically uh, demobilize, to turn themselves in, which is something that has been hotly opposed by the right and many others, but in the context of Colombia actually makes sense and it's probably a good way. And then lastly, looking at the drug policy issue and its full force, what is the markets that are causing this? Working to have a harm reduction approach within the country for um, the micro-trafficking of drugs and the harmful impacts it has for people who are addicted and so forth basically taking away this criminalization of a lot of the softer parts of the drug trade and focusing really on the bigger, more macro fundamental issues. So this would be radically different than what you've had now, especially under Duque, which has been the ongoing hardline military security approach to addressing this, which creates its own human rights abuses and in the end, it's just a cycle. You grab somebody or whatever, and then the next day you have two more. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here in the United States, speaking of the consuming countries, when his victory was announced, a lot of people around here were joking, wow, the CIA is really asleep at the switch here. Like, how did they, how did they let this happen? Uh, what has been yeah. the, the U.S. posture toward Petro and, and how nervous should people be that there's going to be attempts by American authorities kind of undermine his regime? I'm not talking about assassinations. Hopefully that's in the past. But is there going to be cooperation or is this going to be something where the U.S. says, well, what we need to do is just you know make this economy scream, have the right wing legislature block him, and then we'll get back in the saddle next time? So prior to him being elected, there was tremendous distance with the Petro and Francia Marcus campaign, you know, Francia Marcus was in D.C. not too long ago and nobody met with her from the State Department, for example. 
high level State Department delegation went to Colombia a couple months back. They met with all of the presidential candidates but Petro. And so I think there was tremendous cause for concern for them because this is the first time in history that you have a government that isn't right wing or that isn't a given that is going to do exactly what the United States wants. And the United States really has very few allies in the region. You know, aside from Brazil, now, you know, Colombia is the number one ally on everything. And the United States relies on uh, Colombia for the anti-narcotics issues. It's one of major commercial trading partner. And at the same time, Colombia has billed itself in the prior governments as being the friend that you need to contain and uh, basically lead to regime change in in Venezuela. At the same time, Colombia houses more than 2 million Venezuelan migrants and refugees, and most of the countries in the region are not accepting of the Venezuelans. And the U.S., given its sanctions, given its efforts to pressure Venezuela, basically needs to have a a country that, that can receive the Venezuelans. And so There are many questions. Uh, Another one is economic. Petro has talked about changing the focus of the economy in Colombia was highly reliant on extractive industry and on that way of of building wealth, which is one of the root causes of inequality in this country. And you see a situation where there are fears um, for some investors what that's going to mean because the free trade agreement, for example, is all focused on mining and that kind of thing. So I think that there's been tremendous fear, but to my surprise, at least, the reaction was after the win that Secretary of State Blinken called and then Biden called, you know, very shortly after saying they would continue to work together in terms of mutual interests. This contrasts greatly from when Duque won. Um, At that time, the Democrats were really mad because the governing party, the Democratic Center, had intervened in U.S. congressional elections in Southern Florida and had also been very, very much pro-Trump, very explicitly. So I think that I was surprised by the initial outreach. And I think part of that was really to sort of calm the nerves of investors and others that, you know, and and sending the message that the U.S. is going to figure out a way to work with Gustavo Petro. But the relationship's not going to be, I think, the same as prior relationships that you've had where very much that those governments have wanted to please and do exactly what the U.S. wants. And how much, how much can he do? Like, what kind of mandate does he have? Okay, so um, governance is going to be uh, not easy for him. First, the Pacto Historico is a coalition. At the same time, the traditional parties are very much in the Congress. And in Colombia, you need to pass legislation through the Congress to make a lot of the radical changes that he wants to make. So he's going to have to build coalitions with groups and peoples that he normally doesn't. At the same time, um, and this was part of his speech, he talked a lot about trying to unify. You know, Colombia is incredibly polarized. And there's a very strong right that has consolidated, that basically has decided that they're going to make his life miserable, or they tried everything for him not to get elected, including mass disinformation campaigns and fear-mongering and what have you and threatening to leave the country. I mean, already you have the Colombian ambassador to the U.S. resigning, you know, within five minutes to make a big point that, you know, the country is going to hell and he's resigning, you know. So you're going to have a lot of dramatic political theater and efforts to 
block his, his, his situation. So he's going to have to figure out a way to bring the country together, at least on certain issues, if he wants to advance a lot of those issues. The question is, how are the violent people here going to react, especially on, on the right? If we see changes in the economy that they don't like or what have you, um, are they going to paralyze parts of the country? Prior to the elections, for example, one of these illegal groups basically paralyzed the equivalent of 11 states. Um, so they still have a lot of power. And so we'll have to see how that turns out. At the same time, he said that he's going to reach out to the secondary guerrilla group, the ELN, and like I said earlier, offer incentives for some of these groups to submit themselves to justice. And so we'll have to see how that goes. The military in Colombia, the way it's presented in the international press is that the military is incredibly concerned, that they're very anti-Petro. And yes, the commander of the army is, and, and he actually made many statements during the campaign, something that you're not supposed to do by the constitution in Colombia. But if you're around the rest of the military, that's not the cupola, that's not the head, they're actually very much in favor of Petro. For the first time, you've seen veterans who have all campaigned for Petro. And why are they doing that? Because the armed forces in Colombia have suffered multiple corruption scandals. And there are many issues in the armed forces that they're hoping that Petro can help address. One of them is supporting the soldiers that have confessed to extrajudicial killings and that want the truth to come out through the transitional justice system about how they were ordered to do this, um, why this practice that led to the extrajudicial killing of more than 6,000 or more innocent people, you know, where people were selected to be then killed and then dressed as guerrilla killed in combat because there was so much pressure to show results through body counts. So basically each battalion had to report how many people they killed. You know, they want all of that exposed because they want that to change. And so I think that there may be some opposition from some of the higher command or, or what have you, but in general, that there is, is great support for him from the majority of the folks in the armed forces. And I, I know you've got to run in a second, but I wanted to get your rundown on, on two other obviously very important people in this election. I think the listeners would love to hear about both of them, both Francia Marquez and, and Rodolfo Hernandez. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's start with Rodolfo. Utterly fascinating figure, but might be a new archetype for our time, like a very kind of Trumpy-like figure. And the election itself kind of feels like of our time, like the kind of shadow of leftist movements on one side and some pop, some populist energy combining together into this weird TikTok king on the other side. And would you, like, how do you, how would you even describe him politically? Um, I would describe him as an opportunist who basically is a magnate, somebody with money who's been able to have a voice in politics because he managed to manipulate social media very well. But more than that, he managed to read a country where people are completely disgusted by the traditional politics that they have felt that none of that has really met their needs. And then a sector of the population that is tired of polarization 
and who saw Petro as part of that polarization. And so they just wanted to vote for anybody who wasn't your typical, who wasn't part of that. And it was more than anything a protest vote against the traditional parties. You know, that said, his so-called campaign was against corruption, which is completely ironic because he's facing all these charges of corruption. Again, the parallels to our own politics here in the U.S. are just unreal. And then his way of being uh, was incredibly brash, you know, attacking journalists, attacking women, saying whatever he feels at the moment. You know, there was no real policy prescriptions behind many of the things he said, or he would contradict himself. But I think those Colombians that, you know, the reason that he rose to fame was first because Colombians who were more towards the right also were completely sick and tired of the typical right. Um, You know, Duque is leaving with a very high level of unpopularity. You know, that unpopularity is not just from people from the left. I think they're from the right. There was a lot of uh, dislike of Duque because they felt that he didn't handle things properly and what have you. And so, you know, I think that those people who didn't want to vote for Petro because they feel like that was too much for them in terms of towards the left really kind of rallied around this guy. But also, I think what made him popular was the fact that he didn't follow any of the rules. Like he didn't want to debate. He accepted the fact that he was the second candidate from his kitchen counter. He immediately left the country and was in Miami basically. And so I think that it was, for me, this was a expression of just, you know, we're just tired of things as usual, mm-hmm. So we'll just go with, you know, whatever, even though it's a wild card and we don't know exactly what he will do, but he's, you know, a common guy that we like. And I think that that was very, very problematic and very scary because you don't know what you're going to get. At the same time, the right, when they saw that their candidate had no chance of winning, they saw him as their plan B. And so immediately they all started rallying behind him and, you know, making him out to be this hero and all these things uh, because they felt that they could somehow preserve their interest through him. So, I mean, that's basically- And it looked like he had it in the bag mm-hmm. after the runoff mm-hmm. because, like you said, instantly the entire right gets behind him. And he was, you know, polls had him up, say, what, 58, 42 mm-hmm. or something. You know, the day the day after making making the runoff, why did he collapse? Well, two things there. One, I think that a lot of the way that he was presented as being so doing so well is partly because the mainstream media is mostly financed by business interests and by the right, mm-hmm. and so I think that there was a bit of an exaggeration of how much you know how well he was doing and so forth. And then the polls in Colombia, they tend to be very focused on certain sectors. And so I'm not sure that's completely how it really was, even though that Mm -hmm. was what was presented. Um, But there was definitely this rallying behind him as the option because uh, the right was so concerned. You know, in any event, the elections proved that um, he wasn't. And so we'll have to see you know, what role he plays now that he's going to be in the Congress. He doesn't have a coalition. I think there may be two mm-hmm. or three other representatives from his his coalition, so he's not going to have a lot of power. But given his way of acting and so forth, he's probably going to be quite a character and, in, in politics. And then Francia Marquez, the f- first Afro-Latina mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. elected either president or vice president. Who is she? Who is she? Well, full disclosure, um, we've worked with Francia Marquez since 2005. 
Uh, she's a prominent Afro-Colombian social leader from the region of Cauca, which is a ethnically diverse area, mostly indigenous and Afro-Colombian. These are these are Afro-Colombians that have been there since the time of slavery and basically have survived there living off of agriculture and some of the gold mines in artisanal mining. So she comes from actually being a miner in those areas. She became a figure, at least a social leader figure, when in these territories, illegal gold interests through third parties try to evict her entire community. So basically, in lots of the parts of the country, Afro-Colombians were granted collective land rights, which allowed them to basically stop um, outside interests from taking over their natural resources. In the case of Northern Cauca, that promise never happened. And so judicially, outsiders were able to claim that part of those lands where they don't live or even have a presence um, is theirs. And she fought that. Uh, she fought that um, by organizing her community against that encroachment. Also a large hydroelectric dam that has been incredibly damaging in this whole area. And after that, she organized uh, the women of Northern Cauca to mobilize to Bogota um, to try and raise awareness of the fact that there's tremendous insecurity in the region that she was from. So the areas of Cauca that we're talking about are part of this corridor, this narco corridor. There you have the presence of multiple illegal um, armed groups, especially from the right, but you also have them from the left. And the civilian population is kind of stuck between all of them. And so she's been a major force in organizing people against these groups, which is why she was displaced and why she's had so many death threats and attacks. She then uh, ran for Congress, where she got a tremendous amount of votes and support. And then through uh, the latest campaign where she was running for president, she became a national figure. And I think what's made her particularly attractive to people, not just the rural um, Afro and indigenous people, but broader people in the countries that she represented like a feminist campaign and that she would represent the interests of women. At the same time, the nobodies, which are basically the people who don't traditionally get any attention paid to them in Colombia, um, but more than that, her style of very being very direct and saying things as they are captured the sentiment of lots of different people in the country. And that's what you know made her so popular. Frankly, Petra would not have won hmm. if um, she hadn't been his candidate. And if you look at the whole Pacific region, Francia was the reason why he won. Wow. Well, Jimena Sanchez, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That was Jimena Sanchez Garzoli, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.